0: Welcome to Interparty Conflict, the podcast where we answer your questions so you can have the best tabletop gaming experience possible. My name is Gabe. My name is Jeff. And we've got two very special guests with us today, Jesse and Sean from DMs of Vancouver.
1: Hi, I'm Sean.
0: And I'm Jesse. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah. Um, So I I found you guys when... I think Justin from Crit Academy was he he very often like posts on Twitter like a huge line of all the podcasts he's listening to and uh, you guys were on there I think you might have I think you guys uh, followed us on Twitter and then I followed you back and I listened to a couple episodes of your podcast and I thought this is a sounds like a great show mm-hmm. and so uh, so I reached out and here we are yeah
2: well thank you and um, so after you reached out I because. I am paranoid about random people reaching out to us, so I always look into whatever the thing is. Uh, and yeah. I actually discovered that you've talked to some friends of, of ours and the network we're part of, uh, Damien and Sketchy or Caitlin.
0: Yes. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they're yeah. pretty. They're uh, they're good people.
2: Yeah, they're good people. We we did some extra life stuff with them earlier this year or last year, I guess.
0: Yeah. Do you want to tell our listeners about your show?
1: Yeah, Sean. Sean do you want to go? Sure. <laughs> uh, it's. Basically, an advice show aimed at newer GMs, uh, but we also tackle stuff for for DMs who've been in it for a decade or more. Uh, Mm -hmm. Basically, every episode we have somebody on and they talk about something usually that they're fairly passionate about. And uh, we've covered a wide range of topics from from session zero to uh, all sorts of fun and interesting topics, some a little bit more lighthearted than others, but. Uh, at the end of the day, the the goal, what we're reaching for, is to try and uh, just give advice to anybody who's a GM for in anything that they might be trying to do with their at their table to help them out, give them ideas,
2: yeah, give them the tools that they need. Well,
0: awesome.
1: Yeah, it's it's also
2: worked out pretty well because we kind of started the show based on the fact that we would often talk to each other about D and D and like running stuff because we didn't happen to play any any of each other's games and we're kind mm-hmm. of like extending and recording those conversations with guests and you know hoping it proves helpful to people
0: cool yeah it sounds like we're we're in a similar business i would say yeah <laughs> um yeah, uh I I think that I've I've come to realize that a lot of the advice that we give on our show, I I end up inadvertently tailoring it mostly towards uh people running the game rather than people playing the game. Mm-hmm. You know, I like it to be as universal as possible, but I mean because I've had so much more experience being a dungeon master than being a player, I I think that's just kind of where I'm where I'm coming from most of the time. Yeah. yeah. I think there's a
2: certain amount of truth to the fact that, like, GMs have to think about how they play a lot more a lot of the time. Sure. Um, though, like, I certainly wouldn't want to imply that players don't because I'm also a player <laughs> right. and I spend a lot of time thinking about what I'm doing. <laughs> but, like, it's uh, it's it's more necessary for the DM's role to be, like, overthinking everything. <laughs> sure.
3: It, sure comes, yeah.
1: it comes naturally to think way too much about all this stuff
3: yeah <laughs> yeah with players it comes more down to like just like etiquette and behavior you know it's like player etiquette is important and mm-hmm. like understanding that the the amount of work that goes into being a dm sure uh you know that's that's good for a player to know but yeah you like as far as like advice for D D, you're it it's going to be the majority of it is going to be for the dm just because there's so much extra work involved yeah
0: um i guess uh sean and jesse why don't you tell me how you guys got into tabletop role playing I always forget to ask our guests this. I intend <laughs> to. You remember to. Email
2: yes. worked. Um, I got into tabletop in kind of like a long, convoluted way, in that like I was friends with a bunch of people who played in high school, and I would go to their houses and hang out and see their books and leaf through them, but never got to play for like many years until finally someone was like, "Oh hey, we're gonna run this this Star Wars game." do you want to do you want to play in it we're trying to get new players into it and so i Mm -hmm. first played the i think the fantasy flight star wars game like the mid-2000s star wars d20 game and then yeah uh briefly played some 3.5 and then launched into fourth edition when that came out shortly thereafter
1: cool uh for myself uh D&D was something that I had a fascination with uh, in in high school when I first got introduced to it. I never got around to getting invited to any games and there were some things I had in the back of my mind that like, oh, that would be a fun thing to do a campaign for that just kind of sat in my subconscious for years until the fifth edition beginner's box came out and I'm like, I'm going to buy it and I'm going to wrangle up some people and sit them down at the table and we're going to do this thing. And I ended up running the beginner's box for two separate groups at the same time, which was an adventure. And uh, and I've been basically running. I ran a homebrew campaign after that, and I have branched out really quickly into a bunch of other games. I've played Eclipse Phase and the latest Star Wars, and I uh, quickly grew a collection of rule books and various different games that i have yet to play but that is my resolution for this year is to get through as many of those things as possible hell yeah
0: cool mm-hmm. sounds like a a worthy endeavor
3: that that uh playing for two groups at the same time or you know uh that made me think of the think of an idea of like playing the same adventure with two different groups and then like having it end up being like a parallel universe sort of thing where like you mm. you ske- you schedule the two groups at the same time for like the end of the campaign. <laughs> yeah. And like everybody's like, "Wait, why are there so many people here?" and you go, "Oh, you guys have actually been uh, adventuring in a parallel universe or something." Yeah. That could know. be cool. <laughs> it's just like trying to th- think of think of silly ways to like incorporate, you know, if you if you're running multiple groups, how to like how to like sure, sure. You know, have their have their adventures interact in some in some way. I, mm-hmm.
1: I feel like that's a really awesome idea, but for myself, I could only do that if each group had only three people because I think six is my max. Yeah, I don't think sure, I could do yeah. that with like eight or ten people. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah.
3: and it's like if if it's supposed to be a parallel, then it's like, well, this this group we had to skip a session because so and so got the flu or something. Sure, you sure. Know, so it wouldn't line up perfectly or anything like that. But it, I don't know. The it's just a little thing that popped in my head when he mentioned running running the same adventure for two, two different groups simultaneously yeah
2: i've known somebody who've done who's done the parallel parallel groups of adventurers things either in the same world or in like alternate universes and it always ends up it always ends up kind of becoming a mess because inevitably one group gets way far ahead of the other one yeah, 20, yeah. of course
3: but yeah it always comes down to scheduling issues <laughs> like yeah, yeah.
0: sure Okay. Um, well, do you guys want to go ahead and uh, get into this episode? Yeah, sure. let's go.
3: Let's do it. Cool. Wait, are we not recording? <laughs> oh shoot! <laughs> <laughs> no I'm kidding.
0: Um, all right. I want uh, the the three of you to imagine that you are in a dungeon mm-hmm. and you just uh, you just fought the evil lich or whatever. And the dungeon's starting to fall apart. It's collapsing behind you. It's collapsing behind you. And then at the last second, you see that a passage has just opened up. And you remember that you heard that this dungeon used to be uh, it used to be the, the lair of the evil dragon uh, Ashardalon. And so you, with, without uh, any other option, you duck down that, that passage that, that just opened up. You watch as the, the ceiling behind you caves in. And you come to rest in this room and then you realize that your torch the light is shimmering off of something in front of you and you look ahead and you see a pile of gold you see you see gems you see all sorts of treasure and you realize that you have stumbled into the dragon's hoard <laughs>
1: I I have to say really quickly, it's really nice being on the other end of a DM doing a a little monologue like that. Okay, (laughs) cool. I'm so used to being the one delivering them and being on the other end is like, oh, I didn't have to put any effort into this. This Yeah. (laughs) Oh, this is nice.
0: (laughs) We just, uh, we haven't really played D&D for a very long time. Like I run a short little introductory thing at my local library every month. But other than that, like I do a, a Roll20 game for us roughly every month when people show up. But um I haven't actually run, like, I haven't had a game, like, a dedicated game in a very long time. And we just started an Eberron game a couple weeks ago, er, uh, uh, last week. Yeah. Like, a week and a half ago. And even if I'm the Dungeon Master, it's so nice to just be be running a game again.
3: Yeah. I love it.
0: Who knew? D&D is fun. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
2: Right? I, uh, this, this last week, or I guess yeah, this last week, I got back to running for the first time in, like, two months mm-hmm. for both of my campaigns and I was like oh it's such a relief they're moving forward <laughs> again things are yeah. happening
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right so uh today for the dragons horde I believe one of the two of you had a uh, magic item to bring in is that correct
2: yeah that's mine it's uh it's one of the magic items I built for my very first campaign
0: cool well, why don't you tell us how it works and how you used it and we'll we'll see what we can uh, talk about
2: Okay, so this is this item is interesting, and part of the reason I wanted to talk about it is that it was, uh, 5th Ed had just come out. I don't even know that we had all the books yet, because they didn't release them all at once for some dumb reason. Yeah, uh, that was uh, weird. Yeah. Um, but, so my group had historically played 3.5 and 4th Ed, because like, it had started even before I joined up. Um, and we all had a big problem with how feats worked initially. Sure. Uh, because we, we just weren't used to them and we were mad about it because we were, you know, we are nerds that sometimes get mad at things for kind of silly reasons. Um, yeah. So one of the things we had noticed that for fighters, like, if you want to be tanky at all, you have to take Sentinel. Like, sure. You, you absolutely have to. Yeah. Um, so we had a fighter. I didn't want her to feel like she had to take that feat in order to be effective. So I was like, why don't I make a magic item that has the cool things from Sentinel, like the the better third of that feat as mm-hmm. an ability, and then put a couple of smaller, like, additional things. Okay. So uh, she she was playing a an Eldritch Knight fighter, but she came from, like, a kind of jungle warrior background, so she was very in tune with nature and stuff like that. So I gave her this halberd that was forged out of magical wood, and... It did the things that Sentinel did, great. Um, And as the additional feat, she could use a bonus action once she hit someone with it, to get it to like kind of grow its roots and grab and grapple the person she was fighting.
0: Okay, cool, cool, yeah.
2: So it was cool thematically, but I also learned mechanically it was
1: not the best. (laughs) To have somebody grappled 10 feet away from you?
2: No, actually that was fine. The problem was A, it didn't happen a lot. Like, it didn't actually work a lot. Oh, okay. Um, because of how grappling works. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, B, it took her bonus action, which as a halberd-based fighter with halberd mastery, took away from her additional, like, haft attack. Right,
0: mm. right.
3: Okay. Yeah, so, it's like, yeah, having to decide what to do with your bonus action and if you got too many options.
0: Yeah. I, I wonder if it might work better either if... You use your bonus action, but it automatically grapples them. You don't have to roll; they're just they are grappled. Mm-hmm. Either that, or you do still roll, but you don't have to spend an action. It's just whenever you hit someone.
3: Yeah. Or uh, it 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 could kind of go with the um uh was that polearm expert or something? Uh, polearm master, yeah. yeah. Master, yeah. Where it, where they have to the where you where you're attacking with the uh, you know the other end of it. Mm-hmm. If that's just if it hits, if the it, second attack hits, if the second attack hits, then that's like an automatic grapple. Okay, there, there are some monsters that um, that like they when they use their bite attack or something like that, yeah. they just like if the attack hits, they are now grappled and restrained, and that's just part of the attack. Right, right.
1: Like a roper that can, because I didn't read through the description properly, can grapple the entire party <laughs> before you realize what's going on. Sure.
3: Yeah. <laughs> so it's like the the other end of the of the halberd because it's you know the the, the staff part of the halberd and it's mm-hmm. made of the wood. Like there could be like like vines growing out of the back end of it, and so when you hit with that end, that's what's grabbing onto them. So okay. it's just sort of a.
0: So it's not every attack. It is just the bonus action attack, right? Because at higher levels, you know, you might be making three or four regular attacks, but you still only get that one bonus, like one. offhand attack. Yeah,
2: exactly. Okay. And, like I think that's how I would do it. Or I would make it so it has a certain amount of auto grapples a day, mm-hmm. so like, sure. Like you know,
0: maybe like a once per short rest or yeah, something, something like that. that. There's
3: like there'll be like little uh, little buds or something growing off of it to signify how many times they can still be used. And like at the at the beginning of every at every dawn, you know, more buds show up or something. That's sure. a great sure. descriptor.
1: I I'm thinking of like I've seen I haven't played. Uh, bloodborne but i don't know if you guys are familiar with it i've watched a couple of videos yes there's a weapon in bloodborne that you can switch modes
0: uh actually all all of them switch modes but uh cool they're all in very different ways
1: um i did not know that uh Mm -hmm. but what i was thinking what came to mind for me was that thinking of it as a plant-based weapon Mm -hmm. that you can have it switch modes where in one mode it's a halberd it's uh like it's a big long rod with a pointy thing on the end and the other mode it becomes like a vine whip and that's what grapples oh, sort of sure. like
2: the the cane uh yeah cane to sword whip weapon in bloodborne
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's 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 a choice between do i want to have like the reach of a halberd or do i want to be able to just grapple somebody and be able to maybe toss them around a little bit
2: Sure. Ooh, I like.
0: Yeah, that, that could work. Honestly, <laughs> I am all for the idea of trick weapons in D anD. d Like weapons that transform from one thing to another,
3: especially in fifth edition, they like, they kind of like simple uh, simplified like the weapon your weapon choices in fifth edition. So which it... we will be
0: talking about later. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so I think I think that could be a great way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think this is a really cool weapon, and it uh, it definitely could. There's potential there, definitely. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Was there any particular like? story to it? Was it just that just found this halberd or was there like a history to it or anything?
2: So the thing is it -hmm. has been what five years almost since 5th edition came out Sure and I cannot remember the individual session (laughs) I don't know where my notes are So I'm not entirely sure how it came to the party (sighs) However it did become the most even though it wasn't the greatest it became the most iconic magical item in the game Okay and um Later on, a different DM in our group was running a greatest hits campaign where, like, other char- characters that we had previously played were kind of showing up and, like, a bunch of items were. And that was one of the most prominent things that showed up. And we spent a lot of time trying to find that character in that game because That's we really found cool. her halberd.
3: Huh. Yeah. Nice.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Um, I did something sor- sort of similar. There was a game that I ran where it was it was uh the age of worms campaign which i've I've mentioned on our show many times before but not in a while and um there was one of the it was a published adventure path and in one of the adventures the players are they find an artifact and then their the story wants them to trade it to a powerful npc and in exchange he'll give them each a a magic item that is tailored specifically to them and when i was running this i really wanted to go all out with this because i love giving out cool magic items so i we had three players and i i Came up with an item from each of the players' pasts. So Jeff and uh, Jeff here, and then our friend Steve. I knew that the two of them had played D and D together before we all of us met, and so I, I sort of like in secret asked the other of them, "Hey, what?" I asked Steve, "Hey, what did what was an item that Jeff got a long time ago?" And then I found out he had this like emerald sword that his character had. So mm-hmm. I found out what it did in the campaign where he got it kind of reworked that into what would fit in a third edition game <laughs> made
3: it way less overpowered because when, when i used to play when i was a lot younger i was yeah. just like it does all it does like 200 d6 damage or something ridiculous you know? <laughs>
0: right right and so uh so i i gave jeff an item that his previous character had and mm. then same with steve and same with jay and uh yeah i just i i love the idea of giving. The players or letting the players interact with like a fan favorite from the past i love that
2: yeah it's it's cool especially if you have like if you're playing with a group of people that you can actually do that with because yeah. you been playing together long enough
1: i think to me that's one of the biggest draws for having a long-running campaign setting mm-hmm. uh yeah. is that you can have those kind of like characters from previous campaigns can become heroes in myth and folklore and the weapons that they use to defeat ancient evils are now these Powerful artifacts that can show up in modern times.
0: Sure. Mm. Yeah. 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 That's really cool. I sometimes do. I mean, I haven't had a consistent group in a long time, but like, uh, I I sometimes do that in ways that only I would I would recognize. <laughs> you know, in my own head, I'm enjoying that. But uh, <laughs> you know, I I do think that even if the players haven't weren't there for that, it still makes for a lived-in world. Mm-hmm. If there are all of these heroes and legends and such, it does it does still work because then it feels like, oh, the, the DM isn't like, uh, the hero, uh, Bob. Bob computer screen <laughs> has the sword of uh, green wall. You know? And so if, if you do have something to pull from, I think it can benefit even if the players weren't there for that. But it is way better when the players were there and they're like, oh my goodness, I know who that is.
3: Yeah, Bob computer screen.
0: Yep, the sword of Greenwall.
3: sword of Greenwall.
0: Uh, let me write that down. Yeah, write it down. Sword that's good.
3: <laughs> Actually, sword of Greenwall doesn't sound terrible, if doesn't. I'm completely honest.
0: I'm in a, for anybody listening, uh, I am I'm in a room with green walls, which is why. I'm
3: and sitting in front of a computer s- screen. Sitting it in front of, of a obvious. computer screen that's
0: bobbing in a, a tank of water right now. I mean, what? I do have um, to
1: agree. I think sword of Greenwall does sound like it's the sword from like some small little town that became famous.
0: Yeah. Oh, there you go. Sure. Yeah.
2: I like to go. think that the green wall kind of uh, hints at the fact that once you, like, have it for a while and are really, truly attuned with it, you can, like, summon a wall of vines or something.
3: That could work, right. too. Yep.
0: Summon vines <laughs> with sword of green wall. Okay. okay. This is good. Okay. This is good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, did this weapon have a name? No. It
2: just ended up becoming the Halbert of Renai. Uh, Renai was the, the character who wielded it first, uh, okay. Like, I'm thinking back, and I think it might have been, like, essentially made for her, or summoned for her by either, like, an ancient druid or a unicorn, because unicorns definitely showed up several times in that game. Sure. <laughs> I can't
0: remember. Okay. Cool. All right. Well, um, do you guys have anything else to say about uh, this Halberd?
2: Nah. No, it's just, uh, I think it was one of those things that I just kind of had an idea for and developed it, and that's one of the great things about being a DM. You can just do that. <laughs>
0: Yes. Yes, you can. All right, cool. Uh, Well, I guess um, that was the Halbert of Renai, if I had to give it a name. Uh, Thank you very much, Jesse, for bringing that in. Uh, Jeff, if anybody wanted to submit magic items for us to discuss in the Dragon's Horde, or if they had uh, questions for us, or stories for the Funeral Pyre, or the Retirement Village, mm-hmm. how would they get those to us?
3: They could send us an email at interpartyconflict at gmail.com, or join us on our Interparty Discord at bit.ly slash discord.
0: Yes, you do not have to be a patron or anything, it's, the Discord is open to to anybody and everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alright, well before we go any further, we have a giveaway today. Ooh. As we we have uh, established in the last couple episodes, we're no longer giving away a copy of Chapel on the Cliffs, courtesy Mm -hmm. of Goblin Stone. That was a a great giveaway we were doing for a while. However, we are now moving on to giving away a copy of Crit Academy's Unearthed Tips and Tricks book. Mm -hmm. That is a uh, book that uh, I helped write. It's a great book. It's full of the player tips, DM tips, uh, character concepts, encounter concepts magic items and monster variant. So it's a great book. I, you know, not just because I I had a part in making it, but also <laughs> it's because it's a great book. It's, right. a, it's a great resource. So this is our first giveaway of this book. Who is our first winner today, Jeff? Our winner today is
3: Carl L. Whoa, whoa, whoa,
0: winner. winner. Gobble, gobble, gobble. Yes, congratulations, Carl L. You should be getting that in your email in the next few days. Uh, we're still, it's our first time, so we're still working this one out. Give it give it a few days if you haven't gotten it. In about a week, let us know. Uh, yeah, so uh, let Crit Academy know what you think. Be sure to leave them a review on uh, DMs Guild if you can. So, Jeff, if anybody else wanted to be like Carl here and would like to enter this drawing,
3: how would they do that? They could send us an email at interpartyconflict at gmail.com with uh, unearthed tips and tricks in y- the subject line. Yes, that seems to be how people are sending that
0: in. I do have to show you, Jeff, somebody sent us uh, we sort of referenced, we said, in the body of the email, you can send whatever you want. Somebody sent us this.
3: <gasps> yeah, It's a picture of a baby a tortoise. A picture
0: of a baby tortoise. <laughs> so I showed that to my wife even. That's a, it's a good yeah. it's a good quality email right there. So, yeah, send us an email with unearthed tips and tricks in the subject line. Anything you want in the body. Maybe a picture of a tortoise or <laughs> a rat or something like that. Right. That would be appreciated. <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, thank you very much to Crit Academy for... Uh, helping us get this going. Cool. And then also um, we have a uh, Patreon. If you go to patreon.com slash interpartyconflict, we've got a Patreon campaign on there. Patreon is an online platform. You can pledge to donate a certain amount of money per month to the creator of your choice. Uh, if you check ours out, we've got some a few different tiers. On the lower tiers, we've got outtakes uh every week usually every week if we have any outtakes we've got some fantasy fiction that i've written um i'm currently in the process of making those into audio format so you can listen to them so just reading them we have a monthly bonus podcast inter-patron conflict where we talk about a variety of topics we've also got uh, a monthly roll 20 game which uh, we just did our roll 20 game the other day i think it went pretty well and hopefully we can uh, continue this adventure in the coming weeks so got some cool stuff on there check it out patreon.com slash interparty conflict check out the rewards see if anything appeals to you and if you want to help uh make the keep the show going keep the lights on you can get some cool stuff in return um and then sean and jesse if you want to tell our listeners about your show where they can contact you where they can find the show to listen to it anything like that anything else you guys want to plug go ahead
1: uh well, first off, we're a member of the Cave Goblins Network, uh, mm-hmm. where they've got a Patreon set up at patreon.com cavegoblins. You can support our show and a bunch of other really cool ones. Uh, you can also get access if you become a patron to a, a rotating series of podcasts called Revolver, where a host from the network does a short six to eight like mini series that rotates throughout the year uh they've done a bunch mm. of cool ones right now they're doing second banana
2: uh second banana is uh, our friends joe wes and craig and they basically take two figures in history one who is like the most well-known for something and they look at mm-hmm. the person who is the next most well-known for something
1: yeah and you can find uh our podcast dms vancouver pretty much anywhere uh, i think mm-hmm. apple google spotify maybe others i'm not sure oh yeah
2: most podcatchers <laughs>
1: um and also every uh thursday at 7 30 p.m pacific time i host a uh party night kind of dealio on mixer mixer.com slash cave goblins we play party games and have weird raucous fun
0: yes awesome cool and i'm sorry what day did you say that is thursdays thursdays okay hmm. um i work thursdays unfortunately but uh Whenever I have a Thursday off, which I will have next Thursday off, I'll have to try to take part in that. That's pretty cool.
2: Yeah. Um, and you can, uh, we also have a Discord for the network, just mm-hmm. the Cave Goblins Discord. You can find it at cavegoblins.com. It should be linked right at the, at the top. Yep.
0: Awesome. Cool. Cool. All right. Um, and then uh, just one more thing I want to tell everybody to go check out the other podcasts on our network. Uh, check out the uh, check out Crit Academy. I mentioned them earlier. They made the uh, Unearthed Tips and Tricks book. On Crit Academy, Justin, Ian, and Brandon make new and reusable content for players and DMs alike. They're a great group of guys. And we actually might be playing a game of D&D with them sometime in the next week. Cool. So I'm excited about yeah. that. Uh, also check out uh, Brute Force and Ignorance. They are an actual play podcast on the network. And D&D Character Lab is not making episodes anymore, but... When they did make episodes and those episodes are still out there, Garen and Dan made characters every week and then debated whose characters were better. Mm-hmm. So check those out. Also check out uh DMs of Vancouver. Some great stuff. Uh, you guys want
3: to go ahead and get into some questions?
2: Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it.
3: All right, our first question comes from Gizmo Trunks on on Reddit. Uh how do you handle enemy aggro slash choosing targets in combat? Don't like the idea of rolling or choosing randomly, but what about assigning values based on actions in combat? So, like, yeah, like a threat system. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. Um, have you
0: guys? Uh, how do you guys, when you're running a game, how do you decide who an enemy is going to attack? Um,
2: so I th- think about a bunch of different things. Um, mm-hmm. first of all, am I running something that is functionally mindless? Is it a zombie? Mm-hmm. Because zombies are just going to go after whoever's closest to them. Sure. Um, yeah. Is it uh, an animal that is smart enough to be vindictive and might go after whoever hit it last? Um, is it a, a, you know an enemy that might be actually afraid of getting hurt? Might try a different target. I try and figure out how the enemy would approach what's happening actively. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not quite assigning a value based system, but it is like values based on actions and combats.
1: Mm-hmm. So my answer is functionally the same Uh, I think when it comes to sapient enemies like you're up against orcs or half orcs or goblins Mm -hmm. or something that can think and like try to plan ahead about what's going on especially if they're being directed by you know the the end boss of the campaign who has a goal like maybe the sorcerer in the party has an amulet that the bad guy needs so they're gonna Maybe try and go after the sorcerer to maybe not kill him, but pickpocket him and get that amulet and then just scamper off into the wilderness or whatever. But mm-hmm. when it comes to yeah, you know, when it comes to animals and stuff like that, um, for me it's kind of taking a look at their their wisdom and intelligence and figuring like if they've got high wisdom, maybe they'll be able to figure out the, like if it's if it's an animal like a like a wyvern or uh, a chimera or something like that, like these more intelligent, maybe a little bit more wise animals, they'll be able to figure out, oh, I need to not focus on the tank of the party. I need to take out that spellcaster in the back. Uh, You know, stuff like that. Uh, The one thing that uh, I do try to do, though, is that when I'm uh, controlling animals or like Jesse said, like mindless creatures, like elementals or something like that, Uh, what's a little bit more important to me is how they behave after they've taken somebody out. Like, an elemental or an animal isn't going to stop once somebody's down, especially if it's maybe a vindictive animal. It might want to make sure that whatever was hurting it isn't going to get back up ever. And that's usually something that I, I will talk to players about before we even start the campaign of, like, how lethal do you want this to be like if there's an animal or something and you're in combat and you're down how much danger do you guys want to be in if you get knocked out
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's definitely a good a good thing to discuss before it becomes an issue right yeah yeah.
3: because yeah, that makes sense like if if it's an animal like a wolf or a bear or something Mm -hmm. you know something that's carton that's carnivorous like if it takes you down, it's might might start chomping away at you. Like yeah. you know, it's it's not gonna stop and wait for the rest of the party to show up to to start eating you. Sure. Um
0: as far as like uh attacking people in combat, I, I often find myself I always find myself panicking over this because <laughs> I'm always like uh, okay, which one would it attack? Oh my goodness, but is the, are the players gonna perceive that as as it being smart? or are they gonna think that I'm just choosing randomly? Right? You know, I, I tend to stress over it way more than is necessary <laughs> and way more than any, but I'm sure nobody is, is thinking any of these things that I am <laughs> certain they are thinking. And so I think that uh, in my experience, I usually I prefer just picking something fast rather than picking something that would necessarily make the most sense. In the universe, because I mean, hey, the players don't know what the motivation is behind that. Maybe they think that the goblin has a plan and that's why it's attacking the, I don't know, the guy in the big armor or something like that. Or maybe it's just because I panicked. I needed to attack somebody. So I just had to attack the person that attacked it last.
3: Right. Go off a of gut instinct and don't even think about it. Sure. So it's like, you know,
0: if I'm running an encounter where like this is supposed to be like the conniving, you know, uh, wizard that has, you know, 20 intelligence or whatever and has planned out this whole thing. Maybe in that case, I'll like write out some instructions. Like if somebody has attacked it with this, they take that person out. If this person's casting, they're concentrating on a spell, cast, you know, whatever. I I don't know if I would necessarily assign values to those, but I would, I would probably, I mean, I guess maybe you could say that. I, I would probably, if they were meant to be very intelligent, I would put different priorities for different things. But if I'm ever like panicking over it, I'm just the person who attacked me last or the person I attacked last round, just attack them again.
1: Yeah. I have to Mm. say, I I agree with the feeling panic part because there are Mm -hmm. times where it's like, Oh no, I have only attacked the barbarian this combat and we're on round three. Yeah. Do they feel, you know, literally attacked right now or are they just having a bunch of fun because they're taking all this damage and sure. Yeah. They've been attacked by five goblins every round for three rounds, but they've taken 10 damage maybe they don't care.
3: Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah, Yeah. that's like, true. As somebody who's played a uh, druid barbarian, uh, you know, basically was there to take as much damage as possible. Like mm-hmm. that's that's fun for that's, you know, if if that's what your goal is, as the player is to be the tank. When you get hit with like tens or hundreds of damage, you know, over over the combat and everybody else is is perfectly fine. It's like you feel super amazing. Yeah, you did your job. Yeah, you're like so like it's but. Also, as a player, when I like, I feel like I've been attacked so many times in a row. Like, I do get sort of that feeling of like, "Oh man, I'm being like DM's got like tunnel vision on me or something like yeah. that." you know. But it's you know, I I've, I I never really take it personally, but I have like that knee jerk knee-jerk reaction of like, "Oh man, me again? Really?"
2: I have had players that have taken it personally, or have been in games with people who take it personally, and like I yeah. I, I do think it's um. It's a matter of it being kind of good to know who's playing your game, right? Because a lot of newer players will maybe pick a Barbarian because it seems neat flavor-wise and won't Mm -hmm. necessarily recognize that, like, part of their whole mechanical thing is to be a giant damage sink, right? Sure, yeah. yeah. So it's it's always a good thing to, like, check in with those players if you ever think that they might be taking it personally or if you just feel like you're attacking them too much.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm.
1: And really quickly, I want to go back to what you're saying about, like, if they're being attacked by a wizard, because at the end of my big first homebrew campaign, they were actually fighting a lich. And I went into this battle with a plan. The lich had been, like, spying on them. He knew about them from reports from his lieutenants and whatnot. And so he went into it with a plan. He was going to use... um, Odaluk's resist- Resilient Sphere on the Barbarian Baria. because that had worked really well when his underlings had used it in the past and it just nullified the Barbarian and he was going to do this to try and shut down these other characters and I felt like that was okay because this was the big epic final battle with the you know, the biggest bad guy that the, the world had at the moment so I felt like it was okay for him to come in and be as prepared as he could because it's on the players f- because they know that they're going to go up against a lich. They know that he's going to be dangerous. He's going to be powerful. And I had been dropping lots and lots and lots of hints that liches, and this one in particular, was were smart and devious and cunning. So they mm-hmm. had to make sure they were coming in with a plan of their own of what they were going to do. And it worked out, and it actually... It ties in with a death, the the death that we'll be talking about uh, towards the end of the episode. But, uh, yeah, I think there are times when sometimes you come in with a creature, like a something that's supposed to be really smart. You want to have a plan almost. You want to have a battle plan, something that they're going to know how to deal with the party because they're meant to be really smart and scary.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I would say that if you get to like the end of the campaign, like you're up against the final boss, and the the if the final boss doesn't feel like everything is planned out and is done to, you know, made to be as as effective as possible, then it's kind of disappointing.
3: Yeah, it's like, just another oh, he, battle at that point. Oh,
0: he's just attacking us. Oh, cool. Okay, well, I'm <laughs> all right, I guess. I guess this'll be an easy fight, you know. <laughs>
3: the, the lich used an unarmed attack. What? <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. Well, I mean, they have a paral uh, a paralysis attack oh, on sure. all their natural attacks, if I'm remembering correctly. Ooh. Um, so this is one thing that I loved fourth edition for. I loved playing fighters in fourth edition. Hell yeah. And defenders in general, just the the you know, the the class role that is all about, you know, aggro. I loved it because it... A lot of people misunderstood how it worked and they were like, "Oh, it doesn't make sense. You know, it's uh how do you how do you force someone to attack you?" And fourth edition like does it perfectly because you can attack whoever you want. However, if you attack the fighter, you don't get a penalty. If you don't attack the fighter, you do get a penalty. So, it's basically like whatever happens, if I'm the fighter, whatever happens, I succeed because either I'm taking the damage and not the cleric or He's still attacking the cleric, but with a penalty. Mm-hmm. I've given him that penalty, and I've made his attack ten yeah. percent less likely to hit. Yeah, it's
3: great. And in most cases, like they're gonna just keep attacking the fight because they might as well yeah. not take the penalty and still be doing damage.
0: Exactly. And then, like each each defender had their own thing that, on top of the penalty that they would get if they attacked someone other than the defender, something cool would happen. If I'm a fighter, I can hit him and possibly knock him out of melee range, and then he doesn't get to take his attack at all. And like, I love that. I think that's so cool. Mm -hmm. If you're the, the, um, the paladin, you like, you deal automatic damage to him. You don't even have to roll to hit. You just bam. He just takes damage because he's attacking someone other than you. I loved that because like, it really did force the DM to think about it. Well, do I want to attack the fighter and not get a penalty or do I want to take a penalty and an attack or Mm -hmm. whatever? That's so good. I I loved it. (laughs) Um,
2: I really miss that stuff from fourth edition, but I think it is also exactly what kind of uh, led to a lot of the complaints about fourth edition from people who actually took the time to play it. And that like combat could take forever because it was so tactical because there was so much of that stuff in there. Yeah. Um, And I thought like, I still think a lot of that stuff is great. And I miss like, I miss the warlord so much. Um, Warlord was so good. uh, (laughs) But like, I, like I, I see where that criticism comes in because like, Mm -hmm. Now sometimes even only playing like, you know, a half hour fight sometimes feels like so long. And I'm like, I remember playing fights in fourth ed that took like five <laughs> hours once you got to a certain level. And yeah. It was just a lot.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that is definitely a downside. It the more decisions you're forced to make, the longer it is it is gonna take. Yeah. Um Yeah, so so like personally I I, I often just go with the standby of Whoever attacked me last, if it is like if it's the first in- first round of the encounter and the, the everybody's on equal ground, nobody has a plan or anything like that, I will usually like roll, uh, if there's four players, I'll roll a d4 and then like, okay, one, two, three, four, and then point at each of them. And then, okay, this one's attacking Jeff. And the next time this one's attacking Steve and so on. Um, if it's the beginning of the fight and then I kind of just either who hit me last or the person I attacked last is usually where I stay with unless I definitely notice there's a good reason to attack somebody else. Yeah,
1: I, I will say that this is one of the reasons that I I like fights in D&D to have purpose. There's a reason behind a fight breaking out and I think sure. some of the fav- favorite fights that I've run have been ones where, you know, the party is back in a major town and one of them used to be in a gang and those gang members aren't happy with the one that left mm. and they ambush them and there's they have planned this. They they're going after this one guy to like, like uh, to beat him up, show him a lesson, and like, tell him that like, hey, if you either don't join back up or leave the city, we're gonna come back again. And that kind of kind of takes a lot of the decisions out of my hands almost because it thinking as the characters who are attacking the party means, especially if they're, you know thinking rational creatures who have a plan yeah. there's a reason why they're doing this it makes it a lot easier to make those decisions as to who are they hitting because you have why are they hitting
3: sure sure somebody says something about a, like a shiny amulet like <laughs> the the uh the idea of like uh you know the party just got a fancy new magic item and they're using it all the time and it's wor- oh, yeah. it's working very effectively uh, cause we've talked before about like, if you give a party a magical item and it ends up being a little stronger than it should be, mm-hmm. like, what are some ways to kind of, kind of walk that back a bit? Like, yeah, like maybe, you know, make it less effective or, you know, but you don't want to have the, um, uh, like the, like, oh, it was stolen in the night thing, yeah, yeah. you know? Like, it's like, oh, you guys camp, you were, you, you made camp and you forgot to put it in it in a lockbox or something. And somebody stole it. Like what? That's, that's the, yeah. Yeah. We've said like that, that is, that's
0: probably the, the. The laziest way to yeah. deal with a problem like that.
3: But I feel like we, we sort of touched on this as well, where uh, like it, you become a target for yeah. having this item. So Absolutely. like you, you got the shiny new amulet that makes you immune to certain types of spells or something like that. So it's really powerful. But as the DM, you can then say like, OK, that isn't very powerful. But now anytime something like a goblin or something sees it, they're like, oh, my gosh, I want that. And they they focus on that character yeah. a lot more. So. Or
0: Or they're like, I want to destroy that amulet. Sure. You know.
1: What you said makes me realize how much of a target adventuring parties have to be in big cities right. for yeah. pickpockets. Oh, yeah, because yeah? if a pickpocket is good enough, they just need to make one good uh, theft and they're set for life. They've got yeah. more gold than anybody they know would ever make. Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. right. I would argue on the other hand of that, it might actually that might actually not be true because pickpockets might be smart enough to try and avoid adventuring parties because you don't know if that person you just pulled the amulet off of will turn around and smite you for like 10 D8 (laughs) lightning damage when you have four (laughs) hit
3: points. (laughs) Right, yeah. It it depends on how desperate the pickpocket is.
2: Well, it it depends on the tone of the world you're running, right? Like a very serious game might have it be like, yeah, no, the pickpockets are afraid of adventurers because adventurers are scary.
0: (laughs) Sure. Mm -hmm. I always think that it's a little ridiculous how like the the whole pricing of magic items especially in 3rd edition and and in 4th edition really didn't make any sense in universe. Oh, we no. may in a future episode talk about like making a believable economy in the world. Like it doesn't make sense for the players to just be walking around with a thing on their belt that they could sell to buy an entire kingdom. And so in in whenever like money actually comes up in a game that I'm like seriously devoted to, I usually talk with the players beforehand. About trying to rework how that works in universe. Like, yes, we're still keeping track of this many gold. However, in universe, that's not actually that's not physical gold that you have. It's not physically worth that much money. It's just that like you need this much quote unquote money so that you can have this amount of power at this level. But story wise, it's worth you know something else. I don't I don't know. I'd, I'd have to work it out specific to the to the situation. But. Hmm. um but yeah, in a world where someone could just pickpocket you and oh, now they never have to work again.
3: Yeah. <laughs> it's
0: it's a little goofy on either side. There would be a
3: lot more pickpockets. <laughs> well,
0: there there would be or or people would learn not to, you know, to to just have defenses against that. I don't mm. I don't know. So, it it makes it it's it's more layers of stuff you got to you got to rationalize, I think.
1: Yeah. I think really quick tangent, in yep. the first campaign that I ran, I actually ended up uh buying a bunch of fantasy metal coins, and okay. actually used those at the table. Everybody, every player had a little uh, like felt or leather purse that they kept all their coins in, and there was another one for mm-hmm. the party gold. And I had some like fake gems as well, and some uh, quote-unquote trade bars bars that were worth like a hundred or a thousand so that they could have larger denominations. And sure. I think it was one of the things that my players liked the most was when they killed something that actually had some money on them and I handed out coins. They're like, yes, yes, precious. <laughs> um, but it also made it really fun because they left all of that at my place when they went home. And, you know, I think there was one time where they had gone to sleep in an inn in a big city and, and uh then we ended the session and then they all went home (laughs) and they got pickpocketed but i didn't have to tell them oh remove 20 gold from all of your purses i just went and took 20 gold from all their purses
0: (laughs) i mean that's really cool if if you can if you want to take the time to make that work that's awesome
3: yeah that's 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 pretty great (laughs) we're like wait a minute any kind
0: of physical representation of something that the players can hold in their hands i'm on board i love it (laughs) hell
3: yeah All right. Our next question comes from Colton S. on email, and they ask, how do you feel about the weapon list on 5th edition D&D? Do you think the weapons should be more distinct or that there should be more of them?
0: Yeah. So, so yeah, in in 5th edition, they kind of, like, pared down how many weapons there were compared to earlier editions. Mm -hmm. I also constantly hear arguments online of people saying like oh you got to bring back the beck to corbin man there's got to be got to be more of these (laughs) (laughs) more of these very like slightly distinct weapons uh what are you guys opinion on uh on all Uh, the weapons out there
1: i have only played fifth edition uh Mm -hmm. but i agree that the the list of weapons i think for me it's not so much the list of weapons it's the fact that in the core rules, there's no way to for players to make them really their own. And yeah. so I went searching online and I found a couple of different resources. There's a, a couple, I think there's two or three really good PDFs floating around Reddit somewhere. And mm-hmm. uh, one of them had some really good options on customizing via taking a sword and making it serrated so that it, you know, inflicts uh, a wound that continues to do a little bit of damage over time via like a bleeding effect Mm -hmm. Uh, or making a sword a little bit sharper so that uh, like using, you know, almost like Wolverine's adamantium claws so that it's a little bit easier to slice through armor and stuff like that. Uh, And as well, I also found uh, some resources for... uh, kind of monster hunter style, creating weapons and armor from the big creatures that you kill. Like, uh, I love, I'm
0: I'm listening. (laughs) I saw Jeff perk up when he said that, uh,
1: I, in my first campaign, they defeated a small herd of bullets. And one Mm -hmm. of the characters was like, I want to take that their giant skull head things and make some armor out of that. And I'm like, sure. Uh, in the, beginner box campaign that I ran, I let one of them, uh, there's a green, a young green dragon in like a town that's been abandoned and they managed to kill the dragon. And one of them was like, I want to try and skin this young green dragon and try and do something with it. And I ended up letting them turn it into a shield that, uh, resisted, help them resist poison damage. Um, mm-hmm. and, I think there are there's plenty of other things I'm not remembering everything that's in these PDFs but mm-hmm. I don't think there needs to be more weapons I think there needs to be more options on how players can make those weapons their own because if three players have a great sword they're all imagining a different great sword so yeah, why yeah. not let them customize those weapons so that mechanically they feel more like their own great sword
3: Yeah. Yeah, I like that. One of one of the um, one of the more interesting things I've found in, like, some of the, like, the option, some, like, the optional races, not the core races, but, like, lizard folk can make weapons out of, like, bones and stuff. Okay. Like, it's just one of their, one of the racial features is they can take, I think, a short rest and make, like, it's, it's limited to, like, uh, javelins, daggers, and, mm-hmm. like, maybe clubs or something. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Is that very, it's a short, very short list, but it's, like, you can use the bones, and other pieces of things you've killed like it's like i think it's specifically like beasts and constructs and a couple other types or something like that but like Mm -hmm. so i I was playing a lizard folk character that used javelins and like i loved i had a collection of (laughs) javelins from different things and the dm that i was uh, that was playing with like you know, would sometimes, like if it was a particular thing that I made it out of, like would sometimes give it like, oh, this one actually like this or well, this one has this uh, weird property that it, you know, it'll only ever do average damage. Like it, you'll, you you don't have to roll for damage for this one. It just, it just does this damage. Yeah. I was like, okay, that's interesting. Cause it's not like overpowered in any way Mm -hmm. it just kind of changed the the it just sort of changed how the you know the weapon worked a little bit it like it would always i could always take the average damage if i use that javelin instead of this other javelin which i think the you know they gave it like an extra one plus one to attack or something like that sure
1: i i really like that idea because you can also as a gm do other things like hey did they kill some mystical creature like an adult blue dragon okay maybe those javelins now do an extra d4 lightning damage and Mm -hmm. yeah but but they lose that property after like they've only got so many charges or something uh or you know if they use the the teeth of the dragon or the claws or something to make um a sword like one of those kind of mayan style swords that just has all these uh it's like a piece of wood with sharp things sticking out of it. Yeah. Shark, yeah. Um, Shark teeth usually. Yeah. Like you can, like maybe it functions like a long sword, but maybe it has a, a larger critical range. So instead of just on a 20, it's 18 to 20. Mm-hmm.
2: So I'm of two minds about the equipment list and five. I, uh, I, you know, I don't mind that the weapons list is uh, the size it is. My complaint is the armor list. So, uh, Mm. and this actually comes back to kind of the monster hunter style thing. But fourth ed had a bunch of advanced armors that were usually made from some sort of magical creature. The immediate one that springs to mind is the Displacer Beast leather armor, which that's pretty awesome. You know, just and like for the most part, all they did was increase your AC. They didn't necessarily have to do anything uh, special additionally. But uh, I also understand that it comes to the bounded accuracy that is inbuilt into 5th edition that wasn't present in previous editions to the same degree. Sure, sure. But I also really miss exotic weapons. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And, like, you know, with the feat system they have in 5e, you could easily, like, be like, yeah, feat, exotic weapon, great bow. You can now use this weapon. It does this sort of damage. And... It has a pushback effect, or you know, something you could easily build something for that. Mm-hmm. I also have one other niggly little kind of complaint that is no more nitpick than anything else. Is um, in one of the recent books, they introduced the oh god, what are they called? The Shadar Kai and their, their iconic weapon, which is like a chain whip, oh yeah, or a spiked chain. Yeah, they did not include mechanics for it for players to use which like my thinking would be the first time somebody with an ac or strength bonus who has martial weapon training which means they can use every weapon uh Mm -hmm. kills one they're gonna want that weapon
0: like oh it broke (laughs) yeah
2: yeah um and it it just seems like a weird little little just tiny oversight in that book but it was like because i was leaping through it because I wanted to base a weapon off of it and then mm-hmm. it wasn't there so I would have had to hack it out of the existing mechanics for the the monster and the way weapons work with monsters they have different damage outputs than they would if a player had that weapon.
0: Right, they've got damage outputs dependent on the monster's intended role in the bat- in the combat not, yeah. you know, if a player gets their hands on that weapon.
3: Right, because it'd be like a bugbear does 2d8 with a club or something, yeah. But the, like the club itself, clubs themselves do one d eight, or it's like you know, sure, great sure. club. It's like, well, I can't loot the this great club off this bugbear, and it, it have be a two d eight great club. It's like, no, because that's not. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. The stat block of a monster does not equal its equipment.
0: Right. In third edition, they did like the they they there was a direct correlation between the stat blocks of um, of an NPC or monster and mm-hmm. the player for better and for worse. Um, so I, I like, I guess I am also of two minds of the, um, of (laughs) the, the equipment list. Now I like how they simplified the list. However, I think that the list, I feel very strongly the list has had very little work put into it. When Colton first submitted this question, the actual, I actually, I kind of changed the question. I would say pretty significantly. I think I kind of maintained the spirit of the question, but he started off by asking, What's the difference between a halberd and a glaive? <laughs> because in the book there is none. They both deal the same amount of damage, the same type of damage, they weigh the same, and they cost the same. Yet there are two different they are two different entries on the list. Now, my before noticing that, my argument for why did they have to shorten the list is, oh, well, they're trying to they took all the weapons that would fulfill the same role and you can just flavor one to be the other. But then why did they leave Halberd and Glaive as two distinct weapons? Right. In 3rd edition, they were different in that a Halberd didn't have reach. Now, whether that makes sense or not, that's a different question. But a Halberd didn't have reach, a Glaive did have reach. That was the difference between those two weapons. 3rd edition, I did, I don't know if, if it's worth going over it, but I did bring up the list of weapons in 3rd edition and the list of weapons that we have now in 5th edition. There are definitely some uh, some missing, uh, items on there, a lot of the, like, monk weapons, for example, they just got, they got rid of monk weapons entirely and instead said, if you're a monk, these are the weapons you're proficient with. If you wanted to, you can, you can reflavor one of them as being something else. Like, we didn't need a comma, which is a 1d6 one-handed slashing weapon, when you're already proficient in a short sword. You can just say it's the same stats. Yeah. You can say, it's "Oh, a it's comma. a comma." Sh- it's a comma instead of yeah. short sword. Now there are people who will. There are you know medieval historian slash weapon <laughs> enthusiasts who will argue for hours about no 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 a short sword is this a gladius is this and then you know. The the whatever is this other thing and they'll they'll look at these two weapons that in D&D and every any edition would have the same stats and they'll say no 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 because this one is like two inches longer or this one was like curved slightly so it worked better if you're in your offhand or whatever Right,
3: this was more of a bashing weapon than a cutting weapon sure technically it's both bludgeoning and slashing
0: sure I would say the end result with third edition because like like we've been saying third edition had a lot of different weapons. There were a lot of books that had like, oh, here's this. You can have a slight modification to your weapon. Uh, I think, Sean, you were saying that there's like a a, a book that has like, you can make your weapon serrated. There was sort of a, a, a running gag in our campaign that serrated and laminated were two things that you wanted on every weapon. Those were in third edition, in some third party splat book, there was, you could modify your weapon to be masterwork, serrated, and laminated. All three of them gave a different Uh, different benefit, and there was no reason you couldn't have all three, but because each one gave such a significant benefit, when you got to high levels and you had more money than you knew what to do with, it basically became, okay, every one of my weapons is masterwork serrated and laminated. And so every weapon was so ridiculous. It had a times three critical. It got a critical on a 15 to 20. And I feel like with tons and tons of weapons... You're going to get the play. There's going to be the players that are like, oh man, you know, I heard about this weapon in history class. I love it. And that's all they're going to use it for. But then you get the other players that are going to say, which of these has the maximum damage output? Mm -hmm. Well, this one has a times three critical. So I'm going to use that one. Yes. The base damage is lower, but I have a high strength score. I'm going to use a two handed. And so, (laughs) so on and so on. The spike chain is such a cool weapon thematically. I love the spiked chain. However, It was like the most broken weapon ever. Any everybody, everybody either use a spike chain or there'd be a third party book that came out that it was some other weapon on the end of a spike chain. And that's how they made it unique. Yeah. (laughs) I loved the spike chain. I thought it was so cool, but I understand why they took it out because how do you give it stats to make it distinct without just making it better? Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, you require a feat to use it. Well, I suppose like exotic weapons <laughs> would would be my answer, right? But
0: yeah, but then like, there's going to be someone who says, "Okay, well, I'm making, I'm statting out a 15th level character. I've got six feats or whatever. Sure, I'll spend one of them to double my damage output or whatever. Yeah. Not necessarily that it would double, but." There, like, there's or always
3: like, or everybody's gonna play a human no matter what, so you can get a bonus feat so they exactly, can get that exotic exactly. weapon. You know? it's, it's a tough line. I imagine
0: it was a tough line to to walk when they were redoing the weapons list because they do want to simplify the game. You know, D D has a lot of rules. We've said before, like I've I've pointed out like a lot of people get turned off by D because it's got so many charts and so many rules and and so many references and so on. I can understand them wanting to pare it down. But some of the uniqueness does get lost. You know, I liked how there were like five or six different uh, pole arms in in third edition. One was good at disarming. one was good at tripping. one was good at uh, at, you know uh, some other thing. <laughs> and I understand they took those out to simplify because disarming isn't really a thing anymore. They kind of simplified that too. And it sucks it would be cool if there was some more flavor but i understand why they did it mm. i don't necessarily need think there needs to be more weapons but i think that there should be like a little sidebar that says if you used this ad- this weapon in the previous edition use this weapon and describe it as whatever like i would love if there was an analog for the spike chain yeah. even though like the spike chain a lot of, a lot of people used it because it was mechanically better Yeah, you could it had reach but you could also attack people Close to you, and so on. So, I don't know. I, <laughs> I don't. I don't think the list needs to be longer than it is. I think it could be. You could get rid of either the halberd or the or the glaive. One of yeah. the two. I I do but, think
2: there is a section uh, in the weapons section that says that like yeah, a longsword can also be a katana or this yeah. or that or the other thing. Like I think that is that, actually that's true. mentioned, but it would be better if it was like a box text near the section as opposed yeah. to just in among the rules, kind of sprinkled about sure yeah. sure
1: and what i was talking about earlier with going on to reddit and finding people's homebrew content for customizing weapons like the reason i did that is because i had two players in my table that wanted to customize their weapons everybody mm-hmm. else was fine like the ranger was fine just having her bow and me throwing her some cool arrows now and then and sure. the uh the eric okra uh, arcane knight was fine with just a sword because she got to do fun magic stuff but yeah. having some options for the players that do want to be able to customize their stuff um and like what you're saying with like there used to be like a pole arm that let you disarm and one that was good at tripping um mm-hmm. i think those are the kinds of things that make sense for a player to figure like i i guess because i've never played a campaign where players started at level 15 like every campaign that i've done has been you start at level one or at level three and so the players have a couple of levels to really figure out you know as they're leveling this character up as we're playing like what kind of fighter Am I playing exactly? And then once they've figured that out, then I'll open up some options if they want them for, okay, my my fighter really wants to be able to control the battlefield, so he wants to be able to trip people because mm-hmm. that lets him control what's going on a little bit more. What are some options that I, as the DM, can give to them for either customizing their weapons or finding new weapons that let them do that?
0: Sure. Sure. I, I hope it didn't sound like I was disparaging wanting to, oh, no. you know, oh, no. make your weapons yeah. unique. Like in a group, go ahead, do whatever, whatever. If you're especially if you're the dungeon master, if you want to give your characters, your players something that is is unique, even if it is more powerful, go for it. You know, it's your game. Mm-hmm. It's just printing it in a book is when you open up that can of worms, because there are a lot of people that they don't have a dedicated game. So they spend all their time theory crafting and posting on, you know, their character builds and whatnot yep. on, on the internet. And I think that some, some of the people, some degree of the work that went into uh, each new edition is, is taking that into account more and more. And so it's like, well, we could put this in the book because some people will really like it. But if we do that, some other people will really abuse this. Yeah. Oh, for and sure. so it's, it's like I said, it's, it's a tough line to walk.
1: Yeah. And I think that's, uh, that's, I think the biggest argument for why they have bounded accuracy now is they want to make sure yeah. that you don't have to have spent a week thinking about your character, theory crafting, min maxing to have an enjoyable time at the table. Because otherwise, you just get trounced. It means that you know new players who have never played before can come in and be like, "Oh, can I have a katana? Yeah, here, long sword, but just in your mind, it's a katana." And yeah. The players that really, really want to spend a bunch of time min-maxing, if their GM will allow it, then they can go off and find or homebrew with their GM some way to make their weapons more powerful and do that min-maxing if they really, 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 really want to.
0: Sure. Mm-hmm.
2: I also think that, um, and I'll make this quick, I guess, um, I also think that part of uh, the weapons thing for fighters especially, which are usually going to be the class with the most vanilla fighting style who would probably care the most about weapons doing special things, mm-hmm. um, the sub-builds for fighters, the subclasses are, are what covers that. And I think there's something to be said about like not including that additional stuff in in-book equipment because, well, your class... Does that, and that's part of your class's whole thing. And they're, you know, fighters, especially since a lot of them are very straightforward. It For some people, I think it feels like they lose something when the, you know, the bard can also now, you know, use this weapon to disarm it and basically just non magically gain an ability that you have that is something that makes your character mechanically different.
0: Yeah, yeah. If I were to. Put in some of these old weapons that you know kind of got got lost in fifth edition. I would be tempted to to make it so that they have the same stats as another weapon. However, if you are a battle master fighter, you get a plus one when you spend a uh, superiority die in order to do a specific maneuver. Hmm. I could put in a a gisarm that would give you a plus one to trip your opponent because that's what a gisarm did. And anybody else. It just has the same stats as a glaive because they don't have the skills necessary to make use of that special ability. Huh. The only person that would is someone who has focused on you know fighting with that type of weapon like a battle master fighter. Sure.
1: I, I really like that idea because it kind of ties in with some of the uh, magical items that are in the DM's guide. Like there's... Mm-hmm. Um, the battle wand for sorcerers that gives them more power when they cast spells. There's wands and staffs for all the wizards and magic people. Yeah. And the the magical weapons are kind of a little bit more just like, it's a sword, but it's also lightsaber. Or it's <laughs> right. a sword, but it's also like, it has magical properties that let it do fantastical things, but there aren't really those those lower level like, yeah it's a sword but it lost or, or it's a pole arm but it also lets you trip people now if you're playing mm-hmm. a fighter like sure. i don't feel like there are many of those magical items that yeah are kind of aimed at the fighters and yeah. melee people
2: i feel like the lack of magical like weapon weapons is a whole other conversation
0: <laughs> sure sure maybe a discussion for a future episode yeah <laughs> Um, just one more thing that I want to say about like how it, it gets a little funky when you are running a game that does have all of like all of these third party books with all these other weapons in it. When you've got the one player in the group that they're like, yeah, I'm using a, an elven twin blade, which is this <laughs> weapon from this other book. That's basically just a, a long sword, but with a better critical threat range. And then, okay, you, they've been adventuring for a couple sessions. They're using this rare weapon. Nobody else has ever heard of. Oh, this orc is also using a plus one elven thin blade so that when you kill it you can get a better version of it and it's always like why does that orc have a plus one elven twin blade right yeah when it's a very
3: unique weapon how do do they go about getting a new one right right
0: i i always i always feel like it it's a little it's a little weird when like you've got someone with a unique weapon and you want to enhance that unique weapon and the easiest way to do it is to just give them another weapon that's you know
1: Tangent on tangent on tangent. That's actually something with the campaign that I'm running right. Well, it's on hold right now, but what I did Mm -hmm. is there's three players a uh, Druid a bard and a sorcerer and Really early on like first level. They all found a magic item that I crafted for them but at level 1 they haven't like these are all old weapons that have lost their power and so if over the campaign they put work into upgrading these these weapons these really these, these things that are like, right now, they give them a little bit of an advantage. Like, the mm-hmm. it empowers their spells maybe a little bit. But if they put the work in and they go looking for the magical bits and bobs and things they need to improve them, then over time, they'll turn into the kind of weapons that at level 10 or 15 are like, oh, my God, this is so amazing.
0: Okay, cool. Um, do you guys have anything else to to say about this question?
1: No, I don't
2: think so.
0: Just put more things on the end of spike chains. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh yeah for a long time that was sort of the joke like if you want to make a broken weapon just uh just yeah. put it on the end of a spike chain
3: it's like yeah making up an exotic weapon was as easy as <laughs> it's as easy
0: as putting it on the end of a chain is that okay. where the sword
1: joke came from yes okay. it
0: probably probably yeah <laughs> well i mean it specifically that came from uh from uh 8 theater it was a web comic around at the time <laughs> Um, but uh, I, I imagine it was probably inspired by just putting a weapon on the end of a chain. <laughs> All right. Well, that'll do it for our regular questions. We do still have our social media discussion questions, so we'll try to try to blaze through this. Uh, so the previous question that we did was, "What was your first session like?" <laughs> we didn't get a ton of responses to this one. We got a, we got a, a good handful, but uh, I was more than I was expecting actually, but uh, not as many as we we usually get. But uh, Jeff, do you remember what your answer was?
3: Um. Yeah, I vaguely remember sitting in my parents' living room on the floor. Steve was uh, showing me, like, he had got the box set for, I think, uh, second edition, mm-hmm. and uh, he was playing me through, like, a dungeon. I think, I pretty sure there was a pl- there was bugbears and maybe an ooze of some sort. I can't remember. Yeah. But uh, it, it's, it's a very long time ago, but I do remember fighting some bugbears. Cool. Sounds
0: good. <laughs> uh, Sean and Jesse, do you guys uh, recall what your first session was like? My
2: first session was uh, I had wandered into my friend's place while they were just setting up a one-shot, so I mm-hmm. made a half-elf with a scythe uh, based partially on Magus from Chrono Trigger, because that's what I was yeah. playing a lot of the time, and I, um, I didn't understand how anything worked, um, <laughs> and I confused a gnome and a goblin, uh, much to everyone's delight and annoyance, um, <laughs> and then I had to leave partway through because my parents showed up and they were like, we gotta drive you home. <laughs>
0: yeah uh
1: my first session was sitting behind the gm screen doing the uh fifth edition beginners box and feeling super anxious and nervous before realizing about halfway through that i knew just about as much as my players did and they didn't really care because (laughs) they were having fun and things got much better
0: cool awesome good to hear it um i guess uh my first session was it was actually a role playing game that my brother made up with some of his friends and I remember it was very it was basically just D&D but with slightly different rules. And I remember we fought a dragon at the end and I was I was so blown away by like the freedom that you had to do stuff. My brother was playing a uh, he was playing like a geomancer or something in whatever this system was and he like oh he would he caused the earth to like rise up and grab onto the dragon's tail so the dragon couldn't make a tail attack anymore and I was like oh my goodness that's a thing. <laughs> but uh, I only played that game that one time, and then I didn't actually play. I played D and D a couple of years later, and that uh, didn't go, didn't go much better, I guess. But uh, but yeah, it's was, it was a lot of fun. Very definitely a, an important part of my life. So we got a couple answers over on Facebook. Uh, Brandon B says, "I was eight. Me and a buddy spent a day learning advanced math, figuring out Thaco." Oh gosh, yeah,
1: <laughs> pulling out the graphing calculator.
0: Yeah. Exactly Ryan P says absolutely terrifying I have pretty bad social anxiety and only knew one person at the table in all honesty, I thought about calling in and saying I couldn't make it but I'm glad I didn't because d and d has really helped me be more social mm. that's really cool. there you go We got one on reddit. Uh, FB Ogre 666 says, So I can't remember my first session specifically, but I can remember the campaign it was a part of. I played an Elven Ranger in 3.5 that Prestige classed in, order, in the Order of the Bow Initiate. Mm. However, the people I played with weren't great at explaining the rules of the game to me. I had an abysmal attack bonus because I didn't understand how attack bonuses stacked. But whenever I managed to hit something, I would do a truckload of damage. It was overall a fun, if not frustrating, experience. Mm. Was that the Prestige class that let you get a tax of opportunity on anyone within bow range
3: I don't know I can't remember
0: I think it might have been God, I hope so <laughs> that <Yeah>. sounds <laughs> that sounds terrible and amazing if it's if that's not it there were two classes that were like the most broken bow classes that a lot of people would take both of them and that was order the bow initiate was one of them mm-hmm. it might have been a different one that was the Attack of opportunity one. Anyway, sure. uh, one on Twitter, Stephen M says, An hour of the players arguing over whether to go left or right until I realized it was my job as DM to get things moving. And I sent a pack of wolves to attack the party. This was <laughs> followed by an hour of deciding how to deal with all these wolves. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Uh. Yeah, pretty good. Got a few on Discord. I won't read all of them, but uh, E Thompson03 says, Imagine a college me. Well, you guys don't know me very well, so imagine a chunky, shy kid in his freshman year of college. Late night, excitement, ebbing to play the game my parents were concerned about me playing as a kid. Having the time of my life making a gnome paladin that couldn't possibly survive the rigors of paladin's life. Man, that was a simpler time in life. So in short, it was one of my favorite moments of college. Hmm. There you go. The, The beverage tea says, I nearly peed my pants because I was so nervous. Sure. Okay. End of story. Uh, Floofy Shoop says, uh, First time I ever played was Gamma World, and I can remember trying to escape from a trap-filled maze. Second time I ever played, I was a low-level cleric wandering the wildlands around Specularum and died almost immediately.
2: I should play Gamma World again.
0: I've actually never played it. I've heard heard good things about it.
2: I have the I have the box that has the 4E edition in it. Oh,
0: okay. Yeah, that's, what I, that's the only thing I've ever heard of was the 4E version.
2: I think it was like a splat book from 3.5 or 2nd Ed or something like that.
0: Uh, StiltskinKupo84 says, I covered this when I guested. What I left out was that our creative writing group had one girl who kept showing up in these busty fantasy-esque outfits. There was another mousy, nerdy girl who loved The Simpsons, but because the rest of us were hormone-filled college guys, guess where everyone's attention was fixed. Uh So it became sort of an unspoken metagame for us all to play our characters in a way that impressed the female player sitting with us. Add a dash of conflict, ding, and boom, it was really fated to fail. Oh, gosh. Sorry to everyone involved, I guess. (laughs) From from me to everybody involved in Still Skin Coopo 84 story. GD Sonic says, very awkward, but pretty fun. I still have no idea how I convinced my friend to play with me, let alone stay to this day. And Thowin Frostax says, "I was 15 or so. My buddy DM'd a solo adventure that night. I created Thowin Frostax, first of his name, heir to the frozen throne in the northern mountain. I have used that name as my gamer tag ever since. I don't remember the adventure, but I was hooked from that moment on. Mm. So there you go, some cool, uh, cool memories from from the the listeners. So the next question we're going to be doing is: Have you ever felt like you were playing RPGs, quote unquote?" too much <laughs> uh and the answer may be no
3: yeah but my answer is yeah. no no of course not <laughs> i don't play nearly enough yeah you know as much as we, we we talk about we talk at length about you know tabletop games <laughs> every week sure and we've only recently started playing so yeah more rpgs i mean we used to we used to play quite we a bit did back used in the to day. play a lot yeah
0: yeah what about you guys
2: no no there there was one <laughs> point where i was playing two weekly games and mm-hmm. Just because I had different priorities then, I felt like yeah. maybe I, I should stop. But at this point, like, no, I wish I was playing more. It's just a matter of
0: not having the
1: time. Okay. Yeah, I wish I was playing more.
0: Okay. Yeah. I, I figured most people will probably say no, but, uh, um, you know, maybe maybe somebody out there. There was one time where, it was when we were just out of high school, I was, I think I was running one game of d and I was playing another game of D&D, and I was playing in a Mutants and Masterminds game all nice. in a given week. So every week I had three games going on. It only persisted for about a month. And then one of you know, one of them fell apart and then probably another one fell apart. And then <laughs> probably the third one fell apart too, but we, we would had a, had a revolving door of, of games we were trying to get going. So, so it, it, it solved itself, I
3: guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah okay. I, I can't picture like it being like, Oh, God, the, the, my, my RPG addiction has become <laughs> such a problem. It's it's ruining my life. It's 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 more just like,
1: I'm having too much fun with my friends. <laughs> oh,
3: no. <laughs> right Dear God. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It's more, it more just like, it, it usually gets to, I don't have enough time to, sure. before it gets to, I'm doing this too much. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. Okay. All right. Well, that'll do it for our questions for this week. Uh, But before we close out, we do still have uh, one more segment. So I think we should, uh, let's let's wind down a little bit. Let's take a deep breath. (sighs) Let's remember those who have come before us, those who have given their lives that we may have a better world to live in as we toss another log onto the funeral pyre. All right. So, uh, one of you had a a funeral pyre story for today. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. Um, this is a story of how Magnus died. Uh, we didn't realize at the time when the player named his character that it was the same name as somebody from the Adventure Zone. <laughs> yes. So he wasn't copying. I will say that. Okay. <laughs> um, Magnus was a half orc barbarian, uh, the tankiest tank, and that ever tanked. <laughs> pretty much uh and his story was that um his his rage his barbarian rage had come upon him suddenly when he was younger mm. and he had come out of a rage blackout to find that he had killed his family and he was exiled from his tribe uh in the setting uh orcs and half orcs were kind of a little bit like vikings they're raiding marauders but they were usually very close-knit clans and so for him to be exiled was a big deal and he had joined a mercenary guild to try and find some way to atone for what he had did uh, had done Um, and what ended up happening was uh, he found out that lately about halfway through the campaign that no matter what he did uh, it would be very unlikely that he would ever be accepted back into his clan uh, this was told to him by a shaman who came to tell him that there was something very important he had to go do to save the world so it was kind of a yay I have something to oh this isn't going to help me get back okay fine Yeah. Um, and uh, this uh, big thing that he had to do was actually go and help his uh, the party go and deal with the lich which was the big bad evil guy at the end of the campaign and uh, the way that this played out was actually that the player uh, was actually getting tired of playing a tanky barbarian. He was getting tired of uh, in a party of five. He was the one that took the most damage, but it was still really boring because mm-hmm. he was he had like a hun- he had almost two hundred hit points at a time when the rest of the party had like eighty. And so uh, he was just getting bored. He wanted to play something else, but he wanted to give Magnus an epic send off. So when they went up against the, the Lich, who at the time, there I was actually planning to continue the campaign, but then I got burnt out, so I had to cut it off. But what I planned was, uh, when they went into his, the Lich's stronghold, uh, they, they snuck in and snuck past all the guards and everything and got to his his central, um, I don't know what you call it. It, it, the central part of his keep. And they snuck in. Uh, and they thought they had done a really good job, but it turns out that the lich knew that they were coming, and um, there was a snafu, and they they fell through uh, the floor, which turned out to be a ceiling of a big chamber, and the lich thought that he was going to start off this combat by using uh, power world power word kill to take out the uh, the ranger, I think, who was the person that the barbarian was uh closest to in the game and this is when i gave the signal to the barbarian that this is the the moment and he jumped in front of the spell which i had described as this like black cloud of energy that coalesced into a hand and then began to shoot towards the ranger and he jumped in front of it and he died and then what happened is the one of the gods of the setting came down and froze time and told them that this was a really important moment in history. This was like a pivot point, kind of like a fixed point in time if you're a fan of Doctor Who. yeah. And mm. this was a really important moment and that he couldn't do much, but he would try to tilt the scales a little bit in their favor. And so what he did was he said, you're dead, I can't change that, but I can give you a little bit more life. And so he basically brought him back and supercharged him. But after this, there would be no way to bring this barbarian back. He would be dead, dead. His soul would mm-hmm. be gone. And as part of that, what happened was that like to empower him, he Basically, this god kind of like reforged the link that the barbarian had broken by killing his family by reconnecting him with his ancestors, Mm. and so he got really powerful, he was able to. Uh, Like I gave him some extra abilities that were kind of emblematic of how he had been playing the game. He was always the one that jumped out in front to protect everybody else. So he was able to use his reaction to like half the damage from... Because they were going up against four uh, Iron Golems and the Lich all at the same time. And they were under leveled. But I had planned this out so that... uh, that the barbarian being given this extra power would help level the playing field and um, because there was there'd been kind of an element of of lost family and found family throughout this campaign mm-hmm. like one of the characters was searching for the Eric Okra was searching for the gnome who had raised her and taught her magic and one of the other players was trying to prove to his family that he was worthy of you know taking up the mantle of of the the family because they were this large family of merchants and power brokers and all this kind of stuff. And so, like, as part of the barbarian getting connected to his family, all the rest of them, like, I narrated this scene of, you know, they look behind them and they can see their their family, like, Avatar-style, you know, reaching out behind them and all of them reaching forward to empower them. So I empowered... All of the players for this epic final battle, and they all got to, you know, when the uh, Eric Okra or the cleric cast a spell, it was full damage. No need to roll dice. You're just doing full damage because you have a lot of damage to do to these, to this lich and these iron golems, and uh, and they they managed to take out the iron golems and the lich, and the lich actually through his machinations, he had been planning on dying, and basically took over the guardian of like a a place where magic came into the world and he took over this oh. like ancient sea dragon and but because they were still empowered they were able to like slowly make their way through one of the characters a different character almost died and it was this whole thing and afterwards um the player who played the barbarian uh he was he came he told me after he's like that was way more than I could have ever hoped for. I'm so glad that you were able to put that together, and um, I was just so happy that he was happy with it.
0: Well, cool, awesome. Yeah, it sounds like you did uh, did a great job with that. Thanks. Cool. Uh, all right. Well, I guess um, let's raise a glass in memory of Magnus, who rushed in. <laughs> Clink. <laughs> it's a, it's an adventure Zone reference. Right. Okay, well, that'll do it for this episode. So let me once again thank uh, Jesse and Sean from DMs of Vancouver. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. This has been great. Yeah, thanks for having us on.
0: Would you like to tell our listeners once more where they can reach you, where they can find your podcast? If there's anything else you're working on, go ahead and plug that.
1: Uh, Yeah, Uh, DMs of Vancouver and many other shows that are part of the Cave Goblin Network. You can find that at cavegoblins.com. We've got a Patreon, patreon.com slash cavegoblins, where you can find uh, all of those shows as well as... Uh, revolver which is a special rotating mini series that various hosts on the network do uh, where you can hear right now a show called second bananas and if you go back into the archives you can hear jesse doing tabletop tales where i retell the story that i just told a little <laughs> bit better i think um
2: yeah. you had more time to do it <laughs> yeah
0: sure Okay, cool. Uh, well, thanks again. Uh, and for everybody else, to submit questions for us to discuss, items for the Dragon's Horde, or stories for the funeral pyre, please email us at interpartyconflict at gmail.com. If you want to see show notes, links to media mentioned on the show, or a running list of questions and or magic items, you can go to our website, interpartyconflict.com. You can find us on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Reddit. We've got uh, our Discord at bit.ly slash discord. We have a Twitter account at InPartyConflict. We've got weekly social media questions that you can answer, and if you answer, your your answers might end up on the show. Check us out on the podcast uh, app of your choice. We're on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, all those. Uh, you know, Leave us a review, leave us a, leave us a rating, subscribe, or just tell a friend. If you'd like to support the show and help us keep making it, you can check us out at patreon.com slash interpartyconflict. We've got some uh, different rewards on there, so see what appeals to you and, you know, see if you want to help out the show.
3: Jeff, tell us about FriendQuest. FriendQuest is a YouTube channel where we play video games. Yes. Speaking of video games,
0: I've got my little uh, side podcast, the Arcade Memories Podcast. Uh, If you want to submit a story for that, you can submit it to arcadememoriespodcast at gmail.com. Also, head over to bit.ly slash interpartyconflict to take a short survey about our show. You know, let us know what you like about the show, what you don't like about the show, and if you take it, you'll get two free printable board games courtesy of Mary and Tom over at Hollenspiel.com. And our music is made by Boxcat Games from
3: Nameless the Hacker's RPG. So, Jeff, until next time. Gabe, I, I thought of a way to make this podcast a little bit more exotic. What's that? Put it on the end of a spike chain. ha ha ha!